This morning's scripture reading is Romans 6, 1 through 11. Would you please stand? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. This morning when you came in, uh, you may have received the bulletin and a copy of the manuscript. You also should have received something like this. It is a new resource that our team has put together for you. We are committed to seeing you grow spiritually, and uh, this is a a sermon application guide. Uh, You can use it uh, as you listen this morning. There's some things for you to respond to, things to write down. If you're a small group leader in particular, there are some penetrating questions that can be a part of your discussion, Uh, eight of them actually. It'd be good even as we're Walking through Romans 6, if you could keep your eyes on those so you'll be able to uh, help your small group know how to be able to engage in those questions. And then at the end, we're going to have some time just to be able to pray and uh, seek the Lord. And there's a section there about how to pray in light of uh, what we're talking about in Romans chapter 6. So this will be a resource that will be available um, every week. It'll be at the uh, visitor desk or in the kiosk, and I commend it to you. Another way just to take the uh, content of what we're talking about and a way to push it into our lives in a more uh, applicable and personable way. Let's pray. Father, I love Romans 6. I love it because it is a, a well-worn spot in my Bible, a place that I have often lingered, um, enamored with the mystery of what is here, and compelled to believe its truths so that the gospel might really work in my life. A text that I've often used in counseling. A text that I have um, encouraged my children to memorize. There's life here. Oh, there's life here. So would you help us to understand this beautiful passage and help us to see its connection to how we all live and that today, because of our time, there'll be one additional step that every one of us will take in defeating sin and living righteously. So would you help us and help me to make this clear? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question that I'd like for you to think about with me this morning as we consider Romans chapter 6, and it's this. When you think of beauty in creation, 
When you think of beauty in creation, what comes to mind? Or to ask the question a little differently, if I was to ask you, where in the world is the beauty of God most on display? Where would that be? Or maybe this question, where is the beauty of God most evidently observed? I'm reading right now a fabulous book on Jonathan Edwards, on the theology of Jonathan Edwards by Dane Ortland. And the first chapter of that book gives an overview of Edwards' theology, which very much relates to his understanding of the beauty of God. And Ortland says this, to become a Christian is to become alive to beauty. Do you know what he means by that? He means something really important. He means that when you become a follower of Jesus, you see the world through a different lens. You behold the beauty of God, and the things that you see in the world are not just beautiful because they're attractive or lovely or colorful. They're not just sweet and memorable and enjoyable. They are all of those things, plus all of those things are derivative of God being glorious and attractive and lovely and compelling And so there's a connection between the life that we live in this world and our relationship with God because you're a Christian and you're alive to beauty. But that doesn't answer the question, so where in the world is God's beauty most clearly seen? I was struck by this particular answer. Orland, interpreting Edwards, says this, The supreme instance of divine beauty being reflected in creation is not in the sun or in the Grand Canyon or a nightingale's song, but in a Christian. And Christian living is participation in God, in the supreme loveliness of His nature. And if what defines God's... And if what defines God supremely is his beauty or loveliness or excellency, then to participate in the triune life of God is to be swept up into and to exude that heavenly resplendence. A Christian is one who is being beautified. Do you see what Orland and what Edwards is trying to say? What he's saying, what they are saying is this, that the closest representation of the beauty of God or the most beautiful thing in all of creation, listen, is a Christian who in his or her life reflects the beauty of God. The reality is, There is nothing more attractive, more compelling, more beautiful in all of creation than a Christ-following, God-exalting, sin-defeating, righteousness-pursuing follower of Jesus. That is supremely beautiful. Now, Romans 6 is about that beauty. We move from Romans 1... And three, one to three, which talk about the sinfulness of mankind. Romans four and five that talk about the beauty of righteousness that comes to us as a gift. And now we move into Romans chapter six that identifies how this is supposed to work. So what is the, the hope of righteousness in terms of how it works? What Romans six tells us is that a Christian, a person who is in Christ, A person who lives in Christ in his or her daily life reflects 
the beauty of God, and there is something beautiful about that. I mean, somewhere inside of your soul, you know this to be true. For example, just think when you're 80 years old and you're reflecting on the trajectory of your life. Are your grandchildren going to applaud because of three failed marriages and 50 different sexual relationships with various partners? Are they going to applaud that? They're not going to applaud that. Or are they going to applaud, my grandfather was committed to my grandmother for 50 plus years. He was morally and sexually faithful to her. They're going to stand and applaud for a man who's stayed the course, finished well, because he's discovered what is truly attractive. At the end of your life, is it going to be attractive to you to think of all the people that you've harbored bitterness against, the people you've been angry with, the folks that you've talked evil about? Is that what's really attractive? Or is it attractive to know even though they intended evil, I still chose to be kind and to bless them. Even though I could have sought my revenge, I chose to love them and to forgive them. That's what is really beautiful. Is it beautiful to hoard our goods so we have all of these material possessions that can give us pleasure for a few moments? Or is it more attractive and more lovely to give money away so that the cause of the gospel can be spread and people who've never heard the name of Jesus can finally hear his name? You see, what the Bible is arguing for is not just right and wrong. What the Bible is arguing for is the difference between that which is ugly and that which is beautiful. Sin looks attractive... But it isn't. It appears to be appealing, but at the end of the day, it's an empty glass. And Romans chapter 6 identifies for us the beauty of what it means to live in Christ, not just in the future and not just in light of the past, but what it means to live in that reality now. So this week and next week, we're going to unpack Romans chapter 6 and then The final message on Romans 6 will be the third week of reach, and I'm going to connect the beauty of what's here to the cause of global missions. And there is a line. We don't often see the line, but there's a line. The text begins, Romans 6, with a rhetorical question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin, or continue in sin, rather, that grace may abound? Rhetorical questions are not intended to be answered when the text was read no one shouted no because rhetorical questions they're they're statements Uh, for instance um, kids if your mom walks into your bedroom today and says how in the world are you going to ever get this room cleaned up she's not really looking for an answer she's not looking for well first i'm going to pick up my clothes and then i'm going to do this and here's my strategic plan to clean up my bedroom she's not she's she's emotionally responded to what should have been taken care of a long time ago or If, um, husbands, you're on the couch today and you're watching football and enjoying the common grace of football watching, um, I I just had to add that just a a little bit because I'm going to hit you with what's coming next. Just so you know, it's a setup. Don't clap too loud because you're going to get smacked. Like, how did that happen? So anyway, the common grace of football and your wife comes in the room and she says, are you going to sit on the couch and watch football all day? That's not a question. And even if you say, it's common grace, baby, she still it's not a question. I'm going to get an email about that one. I know it. <laughs> Rhetorical questions. Why does Paul ask it? Because there's something important here. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He asks this, or really makes this statement, because first, people were accusing him of preaching something that could be 
construed as a license just to do whatever you wanted. So there's opponents who were saying this. But secondly, and, and here's something I want you to think about. The reason that Paul says this is because, church, there is something scandalous about grace. There is. And, and if you don't see the scandal, you won't understand what Paul's doing here. The scandal of grace is this, that God in Christ has justified us, making peace with us, with God, that because of the work of Jesus, we, those who receive Christ, are forgiven of all of their sins, that God declares over them not guilty. He gives them, listen, an immunity to God's wrath. They are forever protected underneath the covering of Jesus' blood. Both past sins and present sins and, here's the scandal, and even future sins. It's all covered. And therefore, if you understand this scandal, that would lead someone who understands what we're saying about grace to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that everything that you do in the future is also covered by grace? You're declared completely righteous, that you're given complete immunity? Do you know what could happen with that? That's why Paul writes Romans 6.1. Because there are people who are saying that kind of grace, that kind of scandalous grace could be severely abused. And it could. But it doesn't change the scandal. This, I think, is a right understanding of God's grace when we really get it into our minds and hearts. It ought to make us a little bit uncomfortable at times. And that's also prompted me to think this thought this week. So when was the last time that someone charged us with being dangerously gracious? I think our our natural reaction, our default as human beings, is to be so concerned about where this could go, or let's not be too extreme, that we end up losing the scandal of what Paul intended in Romans chapter 5, and the scandal that he's trying to be, trying to address in Romans chapter 6. Granted, listen, grace can be abused for sure, but there's sometimes I think we negate the reality of the scandal that is God's grace, that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been covered. The way that God has treated us is not only somewhat dangerous, according to Paul, but it also could be a great motivator for good. For instance, there's been a lot of talk about immunity with armed forces because of the conflict in Iraq and why our troops aren't there and et cetera, et cetera. But there's a reason why governments argue about troop immunity. And the reason is, is that one nation doesn't want their, doesn't want foreign troops to be on their soil who could just use immunity and do whatever they want. And another government wants immunity for their troops because they don't want them walking into a battlefield trying to rescue people or save people, end up having to be then brought up on trumped up charges because of some misunderstanding or political gamesmanship. So immunity is an important reality. On the one hand, it could make you really nervous because what could happen with it? On another one, on the other side of the equation, if properly used, immunity is a powerful force for good. It could empower a soldier to be able to risk his life without fear of someone looking over his shoulder and misinterpreting his actions. Or think of it this way. Immunity granted to a convicted criminal could lead that criminal after he has left prison to then go and do whatever he wanted because now he's been granted immunity or that immunity could cause him to go back to the prison and be able to call people to repentance because of how gracious he's been treated. From a medical standpoint, if you have been inoculated and you're immune from a disease, let's say you were immune from Ebola and you lived in Liberia, 
You could use that immunity to go and rob sick people and go into their houses and because they couldn't fight back and because they're so concerned about the illness to steal their goods. Or you could use that immunity in order to serve people who are sick because you know you never be infected. You see, that's the power and also the scandal of immunity. And that's why Paul asks this rhetorical question. Then he goes into a proposition, and here it is in verse 2. So the question is, how are we to continue in sin that grace, or are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then verse 2, Paul answers his question, and his answer is, by no means, or no way. No, absolutely not. And then here's his proposition. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you were going to underline one verse in verses 1 to 11, that's the verse, that's the little phrase, that's the main thought for the entire text. We'll spend the entire time that we have remaining, just unpacking what does it mean that we are dead to sin? What does it mean that believers in Jesus have died to sin and that we cannot live in it anymore? What you need to know is that in Romans 5 and verse, uh, Romans 5 through Romans chapter 6, the idea of being dead to sin is more than just the individual sins that we commit. In this context, sin does not mean just the individual things that we do that are wrong. It means that at a minimum, but there's, there's more than that. The, the idea is that sin is described in Romans 5 and Romans 6 as having a power over human beings. Let me just review a couple that we've already looked at. In Romans 5 and verse 12, we saw that sin has a power because it came into the world by one man, Adam, and it spread to all mankind. It spread everywhere, so it has a power on earth. Verse 21 of Romans 5, we learn that sin reigns in death. In Romans 6, 6, we'll see that human beings are naturally enslaved to sin. In Romans 6, 12, that we'll look at next week, that Christians are told to not let sin reign in them. And in Romans 6, 13, Christians are commanded to not allow sin to be controlled, to control their bodies. Don't present your bodies to sin. And Romans 6.14, that the rule of sin should be resisted as a Christian. So what Paul is talking about when he's talking about this idea of being dead to sin is the idea that there's something related to the power of sin that has been dealt with in a way that is very special and very significant. Paul uses a strong word. He uses the word dead. We are dead to sin. And what it means is this. To be dead to sin means that somehow, in a mysterious but very practical way, the power of sin for a follower of Jesus has been altered. Something has happened to somebody who has received Christ, that the power of sin in their life is not the same as it was when they were in Adam. Something has dramatically changed in their life. Now, it's mysterious. It's hard to understand. We've got to work at it. And what Paul does is he spends the, the remaining part of verses 3 through 11 using various types of metaphors to explain what it is that happened to those who have put their faith in Jesus. And the reason he spends so much time on this is if it is true that followers of Jesus have a different relationship to sin and the fact that we are now no longer in its grip and its hold and its power has somehow been defeated, then that will not only make a difference for our future, it will also make a difference today. That means, for the, the think of the one sin in your life right now that you wish, I, I wish I could be done with this thing. I hate this. And what would it look like? If today, through the power of Romans chapter 6, 
And this next week, you took incremental but very specific steps, and you saw that sin get less and less and less and less and less. You come back next week, you're going to sing differently, you're going to read the Bible differently, you're going to pray differently, because you're going to be like, seriously, this works! My life is different! My marriage is different. My relationship with my kids are different. My, my, my morality is different. That Jesus is alive. He is not dead. He's alive. That's what it means. So we're, why I'm arguing so strongly for Romans 6 is that this is not something just in the future. It's not something in the past. This is where you are to live today. And I find way too many believers who don't live in Romans chapter 6. Their relationship with Jesus is either historical or it's future. They know when they receive Christ and they know what's going to happen to them when they die. But how this works when they're watching TV today or when they're surfing the internet or when someone's unkind to them or they have to deal with conflict or they got an argument with their spouse or how to deal with your kids or embracing relationships with, with, with people in the, in the context of the world. That, the Bible doesn't even relate to that. That's how they live. But it does. Oh, it does. Romans 6 relates very much to what it means to walk every day in newness of life. The linkage for the death of Christ and our death in Christ is the idea of what it means to be united to Him. And so what Paul does here is show us how we are united to Christ. So whatever it means that we have died with him whatever it means that we're dead to sin it's somehow related to this idea of union with christ and and with christ in christ is all over verses 3 to 11 let me just list a number of them we're we're told that we're baptized into christ jesus we're baptized into his death in verse 3 we're buried with him in verse 4 we're united with him in his death in verse 5 we are united with him in his resurrection in verse 5 we are crucified with him in verse 6 we died with him in verse 8 and we live with him in verse 8 so with 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 into it's all over the text the union with christ and dead to sin are absolutely linked together and essentially what it means this union with christ it means this that a believer being dead to sin is completely dependent upon his or her union to Jesus. Now let me pause, because we're going to go into what this means. But if you're here today, and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, I am thrilled and honored that you'd come and be a part of this worship assembly today. But you need to know that what I'm about to describe does not describe the freedom that you have. In fact, I hope and pray, in fact, I prayed specifically that you would feel covetous over what I'm about to say, and that you would be strangely desirous of saying, I want that kind of life, and that today you would become a follower of Jesus. But what I'm about to say does not apply to people who haven't settled the issue of whether or not they truly believe in Christ. So what does the text tell us? First, it tells us that we have been baptized into his death. Look at verse 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So notice, we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. And then in verse 4, we were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death. So three times, baptism, baptism, baptism. It's interesting, isn't it, that he uses this? What's he saying? He's saying that the physical ordinance or sacrament or ceremony, whatever word you want to use for baptism, that when we do that thing that 
then we are in Christ, that that creates salvation? Surely he's not saying that. Paul has labored extensively to say that we're saved not by our works. The theme of this text is not baptism per se, but rather the theme of the text is a believer's participation in the work of Christ, and baptism figures that or shows that reality. So what Paul is doing is he's using baptism in a sacramental or symbolic sense to do two things. To one, describe those who are in Christ. So Paul uses those of you who are baptized into Jesus, he uses that as a synonym for if you're a believer in Jesus. And the reason he does that is because in the early church, it would have been an anomaly for anybody to to be a believer in Jesus who hadn't also been baptized in Jesus. In, in the early church, if you're a follower of Jesus, it just, it just went hand in glove. You're a follower of Jesus, then you were, you were baptized. You made public profession of faith. In fact, in, in many um, countries around the world, you're really not persecuted as a Christian until you're baptized. That people are like, I, I know what you said, but is it really real? And before you think, well, that's weird, we do that too in other ways. If I were to tell my wife, you know what, I'm just tired of my ring I don't want to wear my wedding ring. I don't want to wear my wedding ring anymore. I can't even say it. Um, <laughs> she would not be pleased with that, and I would be like, "What's the big deal, honey? It's just a ring. It's not just a ring, right? The, the wearing of a wedding ring is more than just the wearing of a piece of jewelry. There's, there's symbol and meaning connected to that. So if I say to you, all of you who have a ring on your finger made a good decision in your past, you know what I mean." Ring on the finger means marriage. Or if an estranged wife or estranged husband sends his wife a text and it says, I put my ring back on, you know what that means. Oh, they're married now or they're, they're getting back together by putting the ring on? Well, yes, no, but kind of. The, the, the ring symbolizes something really significant, and so too with baptism, which... A little aside here, so those of you who haven't followed Christ yet in baptism, I just want to maybe just push you and challenge you a little bit that while those waters don't create salvation, they don't. There'll be unbaptized people in heaven for sure. But the fact of the matter is, is that baptism is a very powerful statement. And I would just challenge you and push you and say, why would you not pursue an opportunity to proclaim your faith to 1,800 people on a Sunday morning or a small group of people and go in the water and come out and say, yes, I belong to Jesus? Why would you not embrace that? And for Paul, those things just go together. To be baptized into his death meant... meant that his death becomes our death. To be buried with him in baptism, into death, means that what happened to Jesus, from God's perspective, happened to us. In the same way that Adam was the representative in our fall, so when you put your faith in Jesus, you are plunged into his death. That God counts what Jesus did as what you did, that when he died, you died, that his death is your death. And yet that's not all. There's another union, and that is we are united also in his resurrection. Look at 4b. It says, therefore, with him, 
We were, start with verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then verse 5 is where we need to start. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus is as important as his death. The two go together. You can't separate the two. The, the crucifixion of Jesus, his death paid the penalty for sin, but the resurrection proved that God counted it and it worked. So you can't have one without the other. You not only have to have a Christ who's been crucified, you also have to have an empty grave of which Christ was victorious. The idea is that when Christ died, we died, but then also when he rose, we will Arise. And verse 5 has a future context to it for sure. He says, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So certainly there is a resurrection that's coming in the future when God will finally conquer death and all who are dead in Christ will be raised again. So verse 5 is especially about the future. But the resurrection isn't only about the future. Look at verse 4. Back to what we read before. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, here comes a very important phrase, we too might walk in newness of life. Is that future or is that now? That is now. So here's the connection. What happened to Christ? He died, we died. He rose, we're going to be raised from the dead, but it also means that there is a present reality that we have at our disposal and that we are different today because of sharing in Christ's victory. The Bible talks a lot about newness. There's a new covenant, there's a new creation, a new humanity. There's a newness in the Spirit. And so while we're waiting for Jesus to return and one day that will happen, there is a real sense in which believers are able right now, today, this very moment, to experience the invasion of Christ's victory over death, over sin, over the grave. And that is not just future, that is right now. And my question is, do you know what that tastes like? Do you live in that? Because I know way too many believers don't have a clue what I'm talking about. For them, practically, they know Christ was raised from the dead, and they know that he died on the cross. But the cross and the empty tomb have no effect on how they deal with their their sin every single day. And it's a tragedy. Romans 6 is written in order to help us live new lives now. That believers experience the benefit that Jesus canceled the power of sin. He broke it. Third, we are also united with him in that we are crucified with him. Verse 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Notice what Paul wants. He wants to take people who are enslaved and he wants to set them free. Some of you are, that's that's... That's where you live. You're enslaved. You can't, you've convinced yourself you cannot say no to what you are doing, even though you're a follower of Jesus. And you, you, you hate it. I know you do. You have to hate it. And you'd love to be free. And part of the reason why you're not free is that you've convinced yourself that the old you, the old Adamness, that's what old self means, that old realm, those old desires, that those things in your life, that those things control you and you have to do it. I, I have to listen to what my body wants to do. I have to listen to these feelings. 
I have to, I, I can't stop thinking about these things. I can't stop doing these certain things. And the Bible tells you that is absolutely not the case. There are way too many believers who give sin and the devil and the flesh way too much power. We have been connected and united to the victorious Christ. He died, we died. He rose, we rose from the dead so that we can walk in newness of life. The problem is that there are many people who claim to follow Jesus. They spend more time thinking about sinful things and sinful desires than filling their minds and hearts with the true reality of who they are in Jesus. So it's no wonder when they come to a temptation, they've got no arsenal They've got no hope, and they just fall right back in because they are not convinced that Romans 6 is true, that they are indeed dead to sin. The Bible says that the old realm was defeated, and it says that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Do you know what that means? The body of sin not only means the physical body, but it means the realm of the flesh. It's, it's, it's where sin sets. It's, it's, it's where the... Flesh and the world and the devil collude together. And what the text says is that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. One of the greatest things that could happen today is that you could leave here being convinced, you know what, I don't have to do the things that I know are wrong. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But there are many of you, you're walking through life thinking, I'm, I'm toast, I'm just going to fail. I'm just, I'm walking along life and just whatever I see, whatever I desire, whatever I feel, I just go with the flow of my own sinful desires. And I'm telling you, that is not how the Bible wants you to live. And one of the liberating truths that could come out of today is for you to come to terms with this reality. Just because you feel something doesn't mean it's true. We have boys, we have a girl, it's different with a girl. She has feelings, you know, and... She's like, you hurt my feelings. And with our boys, I was like, get over it. You know, I mean, I said that a lot nicer. But when you're trying, one of the things we're working with to help her to realize is just because she feels it and because she feels it so strongly doesn't mean it's real. And when I teach her that, I'm going to figure out how to teach myself that. Because that's not a female issue. That's a human issue. Or just because I think this way, or just because my father or my grandfather or my great-grandfather become a long line of terrible sinners in this realm. Well, who cares? Christ set you free from that. So make it the first generation where you break the cycle and say, it was all like this until Jesus came and now it's all different. Let your, let your kids, let your kids be able to trace the family line. They're like criminal, criminal, jerk, bad guy. And there's you and like, whoa, look what happened here. Everything changed. Chart that on a family tree. (laughs) Listen to Romans 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Why does God give us the Spirit? He gives us the Spirit not only to confirm that we're real, He gives us the Spirit so we can live differently right now, or to make uh, connect back to the introduction, in order so that we can be beautified. You want a beautiful marriage, you want a beautiful home, you want beautiful singleness, you want a beautiful life, then be a Christian, be a real Christian. 
Not just like a Christian who made a decision once and then hopes that when you die you're going to be in heaven. That's not real Christianity. Real Christianity enters into the life of Christ and then it works and it fights and it deals with sin and it weeps over, God, I want more of you and more of you in my life. And you get seriously violent in terms of your effort to memorize Scripture and fill your minds with the heart of God so that when temptation comes across your path, you can say to that thing, No! I do not have to serve you. I will not serve you. I'm walking away. Watch me walk because I live in the power of Jesus' name. That's what it means to be a Christian. We are forth united in his victory. Verse 8 and 10. 8, 9, and 10. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. In other words, what was Paul saying here? He's helping trembling people who are like, well, how, how, do, how, do, how do we know this is going to last? And his answer is, because he's alive. <laughs> and he's not going to die again, that's why. I mean, when you were singing that song a little bit earlier ago, Christ is risen, our God is not dead, he's alive. That isn't just helpful and hopeful because of a future resurrection that's helpful when you walk out of here and sin comes across your path. You're like, no, my God's alive. Or when you are scared about what I'm saying because you might say, Mark, you don't understand. I've been been stuck in this thing for 15 years. And I've tried and I've tried. And my answer to you would be this. I know. And you keep fighting because your God is not dead. He's alive. And you got to decide, do you believe he's alive or not? Because if you come to terms with believing, no, my God's alive, then that... That helps. Does it mean that it, you never struggle, never fail? No. But what it means is you have a new arsenal to fight. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Here's why. Death no longer has dominion over him. Implication, if death doesn't have dominion over him, guess who else it doesn't have dominion over? Those who are in Christ. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So what's the conclusion then? The conclusion is verse 11. We'll unpack this more fully next week, but it becomes the concluding thought here and the beginning to what comes next. So you also. What a great thought. So you also. When you read the Bible tomorrow morning, remember, you also. You see the life of Jesus? You also. He died. You also died. He lives. I also live. That, that'll make your Bible reading have new clarity. So you also consider, must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. He means... That we need to consider who Jesus is, what he's done, and that we are in him and we have a different life because of our connection to him. So what does this mean? First, it means this. There, There are some of you, well, all of us are in one of two spots today. We're either in Adam or we're in Christ. That's the Bible categories that we have in life and in the scriptures. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you're not a Christian, the the Bible says that you're in Adam. And because of that, everything that I just told you about and everything that some people clapped about around you, it doesn't relate to you. And that's the the tragedy. It doesn't have to be that way, but that's, 
That's the cold, hard facts of where your life is. The fact of the matter is, the Bible says that even right now you are under judgment of God. It's one of the reasons why you feel guilty. Um, The Bible tells us that you're in eternal danger. And the offering to you is to come to Jesus. Not just so that you'll know where you go when you die. That's one reason. Not just to pay for the sins of the past. That's another reason. But the other reason is to come to Jesus today because without Him, you are never, ever, ever going to truly change. You're never going to. You bounce from relationship to relationship, from addiction to addiction. You'll try every kind of program you can possibly try. All of these things. And you may try and change for a little bit, but at the end of the day, what's really broken is something you can't fix. And that is... You can't fix the orientation of your own heart. And that is the miracle of conversion, where God makes you new. And I would just, and I, would, I would say to you, why in the world wouldn't you come to faith in Christ? Do you want to live a life that's less than beautiful, or do you want to experience the full beauty of what God has intended for human beings to live? And that is found in Christ. And I know you've met some loser Christians. There's a couple of them in this room, I'm sure. Anyone want to acknowledge? No, okay, so, loser. Yeah, there's some who gave a bad rep for, for Christianity. I totally get that. I get it. But that shouldn't be the reason why you forever say, I'm not coming. Here's the second thing. This text helps us to understand, for those who come to faith in Christ, it helps us understand how to deal with temptations and sin around us. It helps us by acknowledging that even after we come to faith in Christ, we will still battle sinful thoughts. I had a conversation with a brother out in the hallway before second service here, and he said, you know, it's so helpful just to be reminded because I fight, I fight, I fight, I fight. It tears streaming down his eyes. It's like, I just keep fighting and fighting and fighting. I'm so tired. And I just told him, brother, you keep fighting. Don't you ever give up. Don't you ever quit. You keep fighting, 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 fighting until Jesus comes. The mark of the believer is that he or she never stops fighting because they believe that the power of Christ not only gives them the victory, but even also the power of Christ means that they want to fight. So don't you quit fighting. The Bible tells us that through being unified with Christ, that when temptation comes, That you have the ability to say to that temptation, I don't have to serve you anymore. I'm walking. To be able to look at historic patterns in your life and say, you know what? I've given this thing way too much power. It's time to get serious. I need to figure out what the Bible says about this. I need to start memorizing the scriptures. And it's not like you find one verse and it's gone. No, 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 no. No, you didn't get here overnight. You're not going to get out overnight. Like, oh, I was in this 10 years. Give me a verse. I can get out of it in 30 seconds. Yeah, not so much. Not so much. But the reality is you have a power by the Word of God to be able to have new hope and to say, you know what, incrementally over time, God, you could help me to change. But the difference is is that you see your temptations for what they really are. They're not nearly as powerful as what you give them credit for. In the story of Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim goes up to the Palace Beautiful. Between him and Palace Beautiful is a path. It's dark. It's at night. And there are two lions that line the way. A friend, Porter, has told Christian that the lions are chained. But at night, when he hears the roaring lions, it's a little scary. If Porter's wrong, he's lunch meat, right? Or dinner meat at that point at night. So Christian has to decide, do I go by the lions or not? 
And so with trembling faith, he walks on the middle of the path. The lions roar, their chains lock, and Christian makes his way into the palace beautiful. As he's reflecting on this experience with piety and charity, they smile and they encourage him when the dawn comes to revisit the lions because they will see not only the chains, but that the lions had neither teeth nor claws. The reality is, Christian was afraid of clawless, toothless lions. They can roar, but what are they going to do? Gum you to death, right? Prudence, someone else who's that pal's beautiful, says this. When we see through the eye of faith, we we soon learn that trials and temptations be mere paper dragons. They are the deceptions of the enemy placed in our path to frighten us. But they have no claws and they have no teeth. So walk on by. I think Romans 6 helps us with that. Helps us to know that lions have no teeth. And finally, this chapter is really important because church, it reminds us and it gives us a vision of what true humanity is all about. What does it mean to be human? You know what it means to be human? Where is the most, the beautiful expression of humanity? It is not as you're checking out your groceries with the magazines that are in front of you. What is it with our fascination with people who have messed up broken lives? Does anyone care that George Clooney got married this weekend? I I do not care. It's not news. And yet I know it. Come, Jesus, come. And you knew it, too. What, What is it with us? Why are we fascinated with people who have messed up broken lives? And why do we think they're the heroes and they're, they're not? Do you want to live like that? The Bible says, why don't you come to true humanity and true what it means to really be human, and that is to reflect the beauty of God and to experience righteousness and peace and purity. That's what it means to truly live. Don't buy into the lie that to live in accordance with the world is the way that life really should be. That is not the way it should be. It's one of the reasons why When we do baptisms, there's something within us, isn't there? When you hear people's testimonies, you're like, yes, that's awesome. Last Sunday, we had incredible stories of um, what God had done in people's lives. And there was one in particular in second service. If you're in second service, you saw this, but some of you weren't here. And uh, I I want you to see again the story of a person who was changed. And for you not only to see the story of baptism but for you to see it in connection with Romans chapter 6. Watch this. My walk with Christ started at an early age. I was blessed to be raised in a loving Christian home, accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and personal Savior as an elementary school student. In my youth, I battled with fully grasping the concept of grace and what Christ had really done. My hopes and aspirations were set on worldly desires where the Lord was not at the center. In an act of pride and rebellion, I chose to walk away. I thought I had everything the world could offer. I lived in Portland, Oregon. I had a great job, a cool car, lots of friends and substances to numb my senses. In Luke 15, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. Like the prodigal son, I had taken my heavenly father's gifts, and I had squandered them in wild living. In my filth and overwhelmed with guilt and despair, I felt completely alone. In the darkness, God's grace and clarity illuminated my life as my desires shifted back to the hope in Christ. 
He lifted me out of my situation and put me in Indianapolis where he cleansed me, clothed me, and threw me a feast. I was dead in sin, but I'm alive again in Christ. I was lost, but now I'm found. I'm reminded of God's promise in Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Today I testify that God is holy. I am not. Jesus saves and Christ is my life. We are dead to sin and alive to God. And there's nothing more beautiful than that. There's nothing. So why wouldn't you come? Why wouldn't you repent? Why wouldn't you turn? Why won't you at least decide with one sin this week, it's going to be different. God, you're going to help me, and I'm going to say no by your power through the Word. I'm going to memorize a scripture. I'm going to confess to a friend. I'm going to fill my mind with the Bible, and I'm going to be determined. I'm not going to go there because I know when I go there, I'm tempted, and I am going to live in a way that is beautiful because I am dead to sin and alive to Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to apply the word today and what we have heard to where we live and to our lives. I pray that you would speak now as to how we need to respond to what we have heard and what we have sung today. So come now by your spirit, please, and minister grace to us. In church, while you're just in a, an attitude of, of quiet reflection, I mentioned the sermon application guide before. You may want to just pull that out. I'm going to give you just a moment as we close just to think, what is it that God's saying? There's some, some things even in that guide that you might want to pray, things like, God, thank you for my identity in Christ. Help me to have stronger desires to walk in newness of life. God, I want to fight against a specific sin, and its name is. So I'm going to give you a moment just of quiet reflection. When you hear the music begin, you can be dismissed. You can have some time of prayer with some folks who will be up here at the front. You may just need to sit where you are for a few moments. You don't need to rush to leave. Let's just spend some time asking the Lord to speak to us about what it means to be dead to sin.